Oh man, I'm so glad I get to take you back to Israel this morning. If you weren't here with me last week, we looked at some slides and some lessons from Israel, and we're going to do again the same this morning. If you want to see the ones you missed last week, they're, uh, they're on the internet. You can just visit our website and find them there. So, um, I'm going to start off with the first set of slides that I'm calling the Beauty and the Beast. Let's take a look at the beauty first. How many of you have ever heard of the Golan Heights? All right, you're looking at a picture of the Golan Heights, part of the Golan Heights. Um, right here in the background, real hard to see, but that's the Sea of Galilee. This is the northeast portion of the Sea of Galilee. I am standing in a kibbutz overlooking this, what I just thought was breathtaking beauty. I said, I got to take a picture of that. And so there's the beauty. But what I want to do is I zoomed in on this picture. Let me back off a little and show you the beast. Let's take a look. Yeah. So that beautiful land that you just want to take a hike through could really be a blast. <laughs> the gate, the fencing all around the kibbutz had these signs on them. See, when the Syrians ran this area, they planted landmines to keep the Israelis out. When the Israelis defeated them in, I think it was the 67 war, they captured the area, and they said, you know what? We could go through all the pain and expense of removing the landmines, or we can just leave them here, and that way if the Syrians choose to attack back, they're going to have to go through their own landmines. <laughs> so other than the places they've cleared to live, the whole area is strewn with landmines. Um, we had an interesting experience on our tour. As we were taking a tour of the kibbutz, they said um, there is a place where there's a trail that goes down to some natural springs. It's a real beautiful walk. There's signs. Why don't you take it? So a couple in our group decided to take it, and they get down, and it's starting to get a little dark out, and they hit the, a part of the trail where the, the trail just disappears. Now, they saw the landmine signs everywhere. You know, stick to the trail. You'll be fine. The trail disappeared, <laughs> and it's getting dark out. Well, good news, we brought back everybody on that tour. <laughs> Another picture of the beauty. This is the same kibbutz, you know, the, the lady who we met her, I guess I'd call her the gardener, but it's a very large kibbutz. She's responsible for the, all the plants, um, taking care of them, where she put them. I'm, she, I'm sure she has a staff or a bunch of people that do it. But it was just walking through there. It was very pastoral, very beautiful. But then you just turn and then you see the beast. Bomb shelters all over this kibbutz. So on the one hand, hey, it's great if we're ever attacked, we've got a place to go, but can you imagine living like that? Where if you step off the path, you get blown up and there's an air raid siren in your backyard and you've got to run to a bomb shelter if it's ever needed. Beauty and the beast. That's life in Israel. You know, it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful place. But if you live there, you've got to be aware of a few things. Back to the beauty. Next picture. This, this one's kind of beauty and beastish. What I mean by that is this is a nice view. This man, who was our, our guide for this kibbutz, a kibbutz, uh, it basically means um, a cooperative Jewish business, but oftentimes they're farms and things like that. And they put hotels on them for tourists. And so the kibbutz I showed you before is where we stayed with little casitas. It was very nice. This kibbutz, I don't know if they have tourists spending the night or not, but I did know this. Everybody at this kibbutz was armed. Yeah, this guy had a nice 357 Magnum sitting right there. 
And I, I said, hey, I got one of those at home. He said, you do? Here, let me take a picture with it. Gave it to me and took a picture holding it. <laughs> this guy was a character originally from New York. He still had that attitude. He's lived in Israel about 40 years. And he told us about life here. They are on the border. We are standing on the border of Lebanon right here. And Syria is right back over here. When I say the border of Lebanon, you see that um, telephone pole or whatever it is? That's, there's a fence that runs right next to it. You stick your finger through the fence, you're in Lebanon. And this isn't just Lebanon. All these houses you see here, this is all Hezbollah, which is a terrorist organization. They live right there. And not one of those buildings had windows in them. They're beautiful, nice-looking modern homes and shops, but not one of them had a piece of glass in it. And the question was, why? And the answer was, because they wanted easier to shoot at us. <coughs> windows get in the way. So they spend their lives living in buildings with no windows, open to the elements. So when they decide to start shooting at Israelis, they can do it conveniently. But this guy, he was a trip. He said, let them. We're ready. He said, you know why they're not shooting at us right now? Because last time they did it, we whooped their and if they try it again, we'll do it again. It's not politics that's keeping them from shooting at us. It's because we kicked their butts. And then he turned around and flipped them off. <laughs> yeah, he was a character. He spent his whole life living on the edge, the last 40 years of his life. Not scared. He wasn't scared at all. He was like, bring it on. But he wasn't stupid either. This shirt he was wearing, I, I got one in the gift shop. I have one at home. Had a, like 10 or 15 nations mentioned on it. It said Egypt, um, the Romans, and it just went through all these enemies of Israel. And on one side it had the name, and on the other side it said gone, 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 gone. <laughs> yeah. And then on the bottom it said Iran with a question mark. And then, then, then it said Jewish people, a small people, but with a friend in high places. Be nice. <laughs> this guy was awesome. A little rough around the edges, but awesome. Now, I'm going to take your view over to the left of this picture with my next picture. What you're looking at here is a huge United Nations compound. This is the fence to, to, to Lebanon. This is the kibbutz. So you can walk over and just wave at all the guys at the UN if you want. In Israel, most of the guys call the UN, it stands for the useless nations, not the United Nations. Because what are they doing there? Our news says they're peacekeepers. Their news is they're observers. Because when the terrorists attack the Israelis, the UN doesn't get involved. Those soldiers will sit there and watch. They're not peacekeepers. They're witnesses. And if it gets dangerous, they get in their Jeeps and they leave. <laughs> the useless nations. Beauty and the beast. Let me read to you a passage of scripture about United Nations. Maybe the United Nations. I can't say for sure. But it's definitely about nations united in the end times. Listen to what it says. Zechariah 14.2 For I will gather all the nations. The United Nations. The nations united. I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. This is a prophecy. I believe it's a, a prophecy of our future. This has not happened yet. 
And God says, all of the nations, the nations united, the United Nations, they're going to move from observers to aggressors. They've got strategic spots all in the area. At the very least, they're going to turn a blind eye and let all the nations attack Jerusalem, and Jerusalem will be taken. I hate to say it, it makes me sad, but it's going to happen. Half the city will go into captivity, but the remnant of the people will not be cut off from the city. That's Zechariah chapter 14, verse 2. But then listen to what verse 16 says. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So these nations are going to attack Israel, destroy, you know, take away half the population, ravish the women, rifle the city. It's going to be a mess. But something's going to happen where those same nations, within just a few years, are going to come back every year to worship Jesus. There's going to be a huge change in the world. And all these enemies of Israel, the beast, will actually bring beauty. And so it's bittersweet, the good news and the bad news, the beauty and the beast. Well, we're still in the area of the Galilee, even though we're up on the Golan overlooking the Galilee. Now we're going to come back down into the Galilee proper to a town known as Tsipuri or Sepphoris for the first slide there. Sepphoris or Tsipuri is not mentioned in the Bible, but it's extremely significant to the Bible story. Uh, tradition has it that Mary was born there, the mother of Jesus, and since it's only like an hour's walk from Nazareth, it makes perfect sense that she was. In the days of Jesus' childhood, Galilee was the cap uh, this was the capital, Sepphoris was the capital of the Galilee. It was a large, fortified, Romanly laid out, designed, beautiful city. And uh, Herod Antipas, Herod the great son, is the one who built it. Josephus talked about it. But it was being rebuilt, because there was a, a war before that and it was destroyed. It was being rebuilt right at the time of Jesus' childhood, growing up into adulthood. Now, Jesus' dad, Joseph, worked with his hands. In the King James, he's called a carpenter. And everybody knows Joseph was a carpenter. Well, he might have been a carpenter, but the Greek word doesn't actually say that. The Greek word basically is a craftsman, an artificer, somebody who makes things with his hands. Uh, very likely, he was a stonemason. He could have laid mosaics. We don't know what he did, but he worked with his hands. And in Israel, when you are building a city, you hired local help. Just like here, you're going to put up a building, everybody comes by, the, the electricians, the plumbers, they get hired. Very rarely do you bring people from out of town. So, Jesus' family lived within walking distance of the biggest building project in the Galilee. Almost certainly, Joseph and Jesus helped build this town. So it's real cool that you're looking at a road right now that Jesus almost certainly walked on and maybe even helped build. That's why it's such a cool site. Not to mention, there's just really neat things to see there. The Romans were brilliant with aqueducts. Even today, in parts of the world, some of the Roman aqueducts are not only standing, but being used. This is the entrance, well, part of an aqueduct. It was our entrance, but the aqueduct went way up into the hills. But notice the height of it at this place here. We, we, so we came down the stairs. We walked down in here. Let me show you what the inside looks like. Look at Anne. Look how miserable she looks. She's just, man, I wish I wasn't here. 
that smile never left her face the entire trip. It was this, just, you go into an aqueduct, which you'd think would be nothing. It's like, wow, look what it looks like. It's so cool. And you get to take these pictures. And Juan was with us. Juan, sit in the back. I won't point him out because I don't want to embarrass him. Okay, Juan, sitting in the back. I won't embarrass you. And I'd take him to a place like this. And we'd go inside the aqueduct. And he'd go, wow. And he'd take some pictures. And they think I actually took him to the site. I'm like, We're not there yet. He goes, there's more? Oh, yeah, there's more. And it became this thing. Every time I'd take them to this amazing place and their faces would shine up, Juan would go, there's more? Next thing you know, we're all saying, there's more? (laughs) And this was going on a week before we even hit Jerusalem, which is the best of the best. So, yeah, there's more. I'm going to take you, now we're we're in Jesus' day, the aqueduct from Jesus' day, but Sepphoris was there for hundreds of years after Jesus' day, and Romans built some houses and some buildings and some stuff after that. Let me show you some of the mosaics that were found in Sepphoris. You see that? Can you see that? Is that that good enough? Can you see that back there? Yeah? This looks like an intricate painting, but it's not. It's a mosaic. A mosaic is art made of laying colored stones. The more intricate, the smaller the stones. This is fine art, and it's made out of little pieces of rock. It's a jigsaw puzzle that somebody made and assembled out of stone and put it on the floor for people to enjoy. Let's look at the next one. Just to give you a taste of some of the things we saw. Now, you see there's like dents, because this is authentic. Pieces of the roof fell in. The archaeologists took it away, uncovered the dirt, and this is what we saw. So these are, you know, 1,500 to 2,000 years old. And look at the color and the definition. It's amazing. Next one. You can find a better picture online of this, but this is my picture, so I shared it with you. She is called the Mona Lisa of the Middle East. You can even see the whites and blacks of her eyes. This is still mosaic. This is fine art that people can just come see and enjoy. It's beautiful. This is Sephorus. I can't show you the theater. I can't show you the um, crusader fort. I can't show you anything else. I don't have time, but I wanted to give you a little taste. Besides, if I showed you everything, you're not going to come with me in April when I go again. And I'm going to leave you a little teaser. All right. Next picture is of Gamla. Gamla has a lot of significance for us. Um, I'm going to tell you about it in just a moment. Keep this picture up for a moment, Nick, would you? I'm standing at an overlook taking a picture. Back here is the Sea of Galilee. So this is, again, this is the northeast corner. So I can tell you right now, our kibbutz was over here somewhere because we saw just a little more of this sea. So it was over here somewhere. I don't know exactly where. So we stood up on the overlook, and you can't see it from here, though I do have a picture I forgot to include in the slideshow. But there's some steps and then this rough trail that goes up to here. This was a, a tower once upon a time. And we were walking down that trail, and, and Alan slipped fell and dislocated his elbow. Yeah, it was a rough trail, and we felt so bad for him. But he got to have an experience very few of us ever have, being treated by Israeli paramedics, driven to an Israeli hospital in an Israeli ambulance, getting treated in a language that he doesn't know, then taking a taxi cab to Jerusalem. Not everybody gets that experience. Alan did. So (laughs) he got to see Israel in a whole new way. Now, before I tell you about Gamla, Let me read to you some scripture, which will make absolutely no sense at first, but then you'll get it when I finish. 
I'm reading from Acts chapter 5. Listen. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles, other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey. And when they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. They're mad at the apostles for teaching in the name of Jesus and accusing them of killing him. So what does Paul do? I mean, Peter do? He teaches them in the name of Jesus and accuses them of killing him. And now they're going to kill the apostles. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. All right, let me tell you a few things about this guy. What kind of respect and authority does he have that he can stop the moment that they want to kill the apostles, tell everybody to shut up, have the apostles removed from the meeting, and then address the Sanhedrin himself? He was a Pharisee. We know that. He was a teacher of the law. We know that. And he was honored by all the people. He was a well-respected rabbi. And he stopped them from killing the apostles. And then the story goes on. Then he addressed them. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do these, to these men. Some time ago, Theodos appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. And after him, Judas, the Galilean, who, by the way, was from Gamla, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census, and he led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed. His followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it's from God, you'll not be able to stop these men. You'll only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in, had them flogged, ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Now check out the apostles. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. How many of you have ever suffered and went away happy about it because you got to suffer for the Lord? We're not like that. We, we whine and complain when we get a flat tire and it makes us late to work. We got to learn from these guys. There's so much here, and I don't have time to deal with all of it. First, I want to point out that not all Pharisees were evil. Not everybody in the Sanhedrin was evil. Gamaliel was a cool-headed man who stopped the execution of the apostles. He spoke about Judas of Gamla, probably because he knew him, because Gamaliel was also from Gamla. Gamla was an extremely significant town back in those days. It's where the zealots made their home. And it was one of the first places 
that had a major fortified battle against Rome that led to the war that resulted in the destruction of the temple and a few people fleeing to Masada. Extremely significant place. Gamaliel was the grandson of the great Rabbi Hillel. Um, everybody hears about Hillel and Shammai, the two schools of Judaism back in the days of Jesus. He was the grandson of one of the greatest rabbis ever. The Mishnah, which is part of the Talmud, calls Gamaliel one of the greatest teachers ever. He's mentioned in the Talmud, he's mentioned in the New Testament, and he's even mentioned in the Passover Haggadah, Gamaliel. An amazing man, and he was from Gamla. But all of his most, his creds, his bona fides, his biggest one is his most famous apostle student, Saul Paul. He was the rabbi that trained the apostle Paul. So Gamaliel is big, big news. But it looked like Saul didn't learn his lesson. <laughs> because Gamaliel said, leave him alone. If it's of God, it'll come to nothing. Saul ended up persecuting the church until he had his conversion on the Damascus Road. So that's an introduction to Gamla. But the most, aspect, the most exciting aspect of Gamla, hold the picture, don't bring it up yet, Nick. Let me read to you a passage of Scripture first. I'm in Matthew 9. Here's what it says, verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. Jesus went through all the towns and villages of Galilee teaching in their synagogues. But there's only one synagogue from the first century, from Jesus' day, that they've ever uncovered. And I'm going to show it to you now. There it is. This is a synagogue, the floor and the seats, that Jesus himself almost certainly taught in. And we got to sit in the seats. We got to stand there and read from the Bible. Next picture. We all did it. I just brought you my picture. We all stood in Jesus' synagogue and read from the Word of God just like he did. It was so cool. You know, there's a verse in the Bible where Jesus tells the disciples, what I'm about to do you will not understand right now, but later you will understand. So I'm going to rip off that passage of Scripture because I'm going to do something right now. And right now, you do not understand why I'm doing it. But later, you will understand. What you're going to start smelling is southwestern variety of frankincense. Almost all the time the word incense is used in the Bible, it's actually frankincense. Whoa, that's a bit much, Steve. I'm going to take this far away. Ever heard the word Decapolis before? Decapolis were Roman Greco city-states all throughout the area of northern Israel. The capital of the Decapolis was one called Beit She'an. This is the Cardo of Beit She'an. 
Um, all the cities that followed a Roman building plan had at least two major streets, Cardo and Decuminus. Cardo, like heart. Cardo, it's the heart of the city. It was the main north-south city. Maybe if we built it today, we'd just call it Broadway or Main Street. Every Roman city had Cardo. And on Cardo, there was a big paved street for wagons. And what you're seeing off to the left and right, I want to draw your attention to the left right here, these columns supported a roof so that the sidewalk behind them was shaded. So when you walked down the Cardo, you walked in shade. The streets were mosaiced and tiled. I mean, the, the sidewalks it was beautiful. And then there were shops all along the side. Now, I don't know about you, but when I drive down the city, I see sidewalks and shops all along the side. Building plan has not changed in over 2,000 years. The only difference is we're not smart enough to put shade on our sidewalks. <laughs> the Romans were. So you're looking at the Cardo here. Um, this is a tell. If you remember, a tell is, you know, there was a town there. It was destroyed. They built another one on top. It was destroyed. They built another one on top. It was destroyed. There's like 20-plus cities of time on this tell. It goes way back to even before the days of Moses. And now we're at the days of Jesus, which is what, you know, Moses was 1500 B.C., so 1,500 years later, and the town is still being used in Jesus' day. And it was used for hundreds of years after that, too, until an earthquake in, like, the 6th century just totally flattened it. Let me show you what the earthquakes did back in those days. Next slide. It just toppled everything and made a ruins. Those pillars you saw are about that big. This is a man only standing within a couple feet of these pillars to give you an idea of how big they were. So you would uh, go to the Cardo... Oh, and, and that tell I showed you, they found some uh, of stellies and carvings and stuff about Pharaoh from Moses' day. Yeah, that Pharaoh, you know, you hear the story of the Exodus, oh, we're out of Egypt, we're fine. But what you don't know, which Moses did know, and maybe you know now why he walked all over the Sinai like this, even before they lost out on their promise for the promised land, is that the road from Egypt all the way up to Syria had Egyptian forts along the road. Moses couldn't take the direct route to the promised land. He'd be running from the frying pan and into the fire. There were pharaohs, you know, there were soldiers all the way up and down the coast. And they found some pharaoh stuff here as well. Pharaoh was all over the place. So you're walking up and down the Cardo, shopping for some spices, going to a perfume shop, maybe buy some meat. And they're not big shops, they're small little shops, plenty of them you got to use the toilet. How many of you have ever had difficulty finding a public restroom? Let me see your hands. See, the Romans, they were up on that too. You could go to the bathroom, no problem. Let me show you. There's your public toilet. See those uh, little slabs right there? They're spaced apart. So you just straddle those little bad boys right there. And it was probably covered. Might have been something running water under there to take it all away. Probably a guy in there playing the flute to entertain you. <laughs> How'd you like that job? And while you're sitting there reading your paper, guys, a woman might plop down right next to you. 
That was Rome. I know we're not in Rome. That was Roman culture. So maybe if you are a religious Jew, you might have had a hard time finding a toilet after all. Because I tell you what, I'm not sitting down next to anybody, let alone a woman. <laughs> hey, Jose, what's up, man? Steve, how's it going? No shame, these people. They actually use the bathroom as a meeting place to conduct business. Jose, let's talk about the new building project. I'll see you in the toilet. Be right there. Hey, they got the flute player? Yeah, bring a buck. Maybe we can buy a kebab. Rome, man. One of the longest, strongest civilizations to ever grace our planet. And they had no sense of decency whatsoever. So I want to leave Rome. It wasn't Rome, but it was Rome. At least Roman influence. And go to Jerusalem. Let's take a look at the holy city. If I'm not mistaken, we're standing here on Mount Scopus. Right behind us is the Hebrew University, famous college. That would be over here, then would be um, Mount of Olives with the Kidron Valley, and then up over here, the uh, Valley of Hinnom. You're looking at the Dome of the Rock and the wall of the Temple Mount, which also at this part makes up one of the walls of Jerusalem. But later on, the walls go farther than just the Temple Mount. They do double duty over here. So this is what the old, part of the old city looks like. As you can see, it's hilly. So walking in this area, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's a workout. But walking from Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives only takes a couple minutes. It's not, it's not a big, long walk at all. Up here somewhere would have been Bethany and Bethphage and all those places. So you could just stand on top of the hill and you can see Jerusalem. It's pretty nice. I thought this was a good place for a group picture, so we took one. Obviously, I didn't take this one. But again, there's the Dome of the Rock right behind us. Now, that's not a mosque. On the Temple Mount, it sits, defiling it. And right next to it is the Mosque of Al-Aqsa. That is the mosque. And uh, I want to show you a close-up of the Dome of the Rock, but not a close-up of the Al-Aqsa. Next slide, if you don't mind. So we are standing on the Temple Mount. We were told, do not bring your Bibles up. We're not allowed to pray up there or to read the Bibles up there. Brought mine up. <laughs> neener, neener, neener. But all around us were little groups of Muslims doing their Bible studies. And I was offended. What you think the world would have said if in Israel, in Tel Aviv, they cordon off 45 acres and say, Muslims can only come here with our permission and they can't bring a Koran. That would be World War III right there, wouldn't it? It's what they're doing to Israelis and to tourists. And the, the worst part of it, in my opinion, is the Israelis won this property back during the 67 war and gave the Muslims the ability to have stewardship over it. And this is what they did. Initially, they started charging a fee to Jews. It's just, you know, what they do is okay. What we do is not. It's just not fair. Under, while we're standing there with our backs to the dome, so you could see the picture, that's why we took it there, so everybody could see where we were standing, we're facing the mosque. And our guide was telling us that underneath 
that mosque and that whole platform, like I said, it's 40-something acres up there, they're building a huge underground mosque that'll seat, well, kneel, 100,000 people. And I could just see my friend, our guide, was so upset when he was telling us about it. See, to, the Israelis don't do any archaeological research up there because the Muslims have it. This is the most holiest site in Judaism, the best place to do research. So what do they do? Without any science or care, they dig into the tell, that's the holy hill, and they just throw it into the garbage against the law. Tons and tons and tons of priceless, precious archaeological artifacts, just broken, chiseled, hammered, and thrown into the garbage. Just a shameful thing. Well, I told my guide, I said, don't worry about it. I got one word for you. And he said, what? I said, Samson. You remember the story? All the enemies of Israel were gathered into one temple. And Samson pushed the thing down, and it smashed them and killed them all. Don't worry about it. God will take care of the injustices in this world. Just don't worry about it. Well, in order to get up to the Temple Mount, one of the ways, one of the main entrances is a wooden bridge. Let me show you. What you're looking at, and I'll show you better pictures of the Western Wailing Wall in just a moment, but this is the Wailing Wall. This is the woman's section. This is the man's section. And this is where everybody from this part ascends to the Temple Mount. I want to show you what we saw when we got right here. Next slide. Any idea what those are? Anybody? Riot shields. Yeah. Let's go up onto the Temple Mount, and the first thing we see is enough riot shields for everybody. <laughs> You're in a boat, you need rafts. You're in Jerusalem, you need riot shields. Because it has happened more than once that during their prayers up there, now they want 100,000 up there, during their prayers up there, they get all riled up and start chucking stones down onto the worshipers below at the Temple Mount, at the um, Wailing Wall. They're throwing bottles and rocks, and then the cops have to clear everybody out and go up to the Temple Mount and put down the riot. There's riots up there all the time. It's sad, it's pathetic, but it is what it is. So I thought I'd give you a taste. You saw the beauty. There's the beast. So we're going to go back downstairs, give you a big shot of the wall now. This is the men's section. That gate that you saw, the bridge was over here, the gate was over here. This is the men's section. See this arch right here? That's an important arch. And I'll talk to you about it in just a few minutes. But this is where the men and the men only come. Is it segregated? Well, I'd rather say it's separated. It is Jewish tradition. The uh, religious Jews, if we were an Orthodox Jewish synagogue, there'd probably be a partition right here. Men on this side, women on this side. Segregated? Yeah. If you, by segregated, you mean separated. Why are they separated? Well, let me tell you my take on it. Because women are pretty. And it's hard to focus on God when there's a bunch of pretty women sitting right next to you and in front of you. So they separate them so there's no longer distraction. Women don't have to worry about boys. Boys don't have to worry about women. And we can focus on God. I think that's, that's, a, that's a noble reason to separate. So the guys are over here. Here's that cool arch. If, if you walk inside that arch, you're in a synagogue. And there's a back entrance and a balcony area for, for the women. 
So even though only the men could get in from this part of the synagogue, upstairs there's a section for women. You have to get at it through another entrance. This western wall is only a fraction of the actual wall. There's more of it underground. Back in the days of Jesus, this plaza was not here. This plaza probably sits about 45 feet above the street Jesus walked on. There was a valley here. So this is actually also a tell. Things were destroyed, built up. Things were destroyed, built up. Some of these walls, some of these rocks are original to the original wall. Some of them are not. Now, please understand, this was not part of the temple. The temple was up top. There was a further wall on top of this wall. This was a retaining wall. What Herod the Great did, this was a hill. He expanded the hill and put a box around it so he could make the temple platform bigger. So this is one of the walls holding up the hill. It's a retaining wall. Some of these stones are original to the days of Jesus, but through war, through earthquakes, through battle, some of them fell out. They replaced them. They used them for other things. Um, I got a picture of Jim. Let's pull that one up. Standing by some of the uh, older rocks. I think these would be original based on the, the, the look of them. See how it's carved there? Kind of relief looking. It's all artistic. Um, these, I think, are original rocks. You've all heard about the little notes people shove into the cracks. You're looking at all those little white specks are little holes in the rocks that people shove little prayers into. You can't find a crack to stick a note into. You've got to get it in there because it's just crammed solid. I don't know who these guys are. They were just standing next to Jim, so they're included in the picture. To me, this looks like uh, the rabbi from Miami Vice. <laughs> and this looks like a guy I know named Cesar. I don't know. Just a couple guys standing there. Um, next slide, please. All right. This arch is the one I pointed out to you before. It's known as Wilson's Arch because Wilson discovered it back in the 1800s. It is original to the days of Jesus. You can walk right there and just touch stones that Jesus would have seen and walked over. I say walked over because remember I told you there was 45 feet below the, the street. This arch held up a bridge which was access to the Temple Mount that might have looked something like this. Let's take a next look at the picture. There's the arch. This red line right here, that's the present Wailing Wall. To give you an idea on how massive this structure really is, that wall you just looked at is about 10% of the original. So now they have excavated down and you can walk the length of the entire western wall for the most part. There's still parts they haven't excavated yet. And I've got pictures of those. And it, to me, it's one of the coolest things because at the end of that walk, we stop at a place where the carving stopped. Probably because, you know, the war happened or something. And there's a couple pillars that they were carving out of solid rock that aren't quite done yet. And they're right there. You can touch them. And as you're standing on the pavement, original to the day of Jesus, you're thinking, oh my, I'm standing on pavement that Jesus stood on. And then your heart just flutters. You're like, wow, this is real. This is so cool. So I love the tunnel walls. I don't have all the pictures. I don't have the time to share everything with you. But I showed you those big stones that Jim was standing next to. Those are little stones. Underneath where Jim was standing and over a little bit, they've got a stone that weighs... Well, let, let me give you the comparison. The biggest stone on the Great Pyramid weighs about 10 tons. The stone that 
was underneath there that we've got pictures and video footage of, closer to 500 tons. How many times bigger is that than the biggest stone in the pyramid? 10 into 500, you do the math. Huge. Now, how did they get the stone there? How do you move a 500-ton stone? There's another one about 400 tons right next to it. How do you do that? Nobody knows. Today, to this day, we have no clue how they did it. We, you know? Our biggest, strongest cranes now could move it, but 50 years ago, probably not. <laughs> I mean, that's how big this stone is. These people were brilliant. Herod was an amazing architect. Things he built are still standing to this day. It's just amazing. Well, this is kind of that slide. Uh, bring that back again, if you don't mind. This isn't exactly what it would have looked like. There was a street here and shops, and we got to see them. There was a parapet here, which was the, right this corner, the pinnacle of the temple. It says the devil took Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple. The pinnacle was at this corner right here. Um, like I said, there were shops all along here. Um, there was a big staircase here that I have pictures of. Uh, no, not there, over here that I have pictures of. It's not there now. This one's not quite accurate. Um, but the arch and the bridge give you an idea of kind of what it would have looked like. But I showed you pictures of the wall as it is today. I've got a video clip of what the wall looks like. So this is just me there with my phone to show you what the wall looks like. Let's take a look. Well, there's no audio, but maybe you guys can turn it up. There's a big jackhammer doing archaeology behind us. There's that synagogue and the arch that goes into uh, from the days of Jesus. Here's the wall, and you can see the different types of stones, some original, some not. They built houses right up against the wall. These were not there originally. This wall at the top, as you saw in the other model I showed you, would have gone up another, who knows, 40 feet or something. I'm not exactly sure. So now I'm going to turn the camera, face it over towards the women's section, and we just happen to stumble upon a bar mitzvah going on right here. And the women, as you can see, are looking over the wall, probably some friends and relatives of the two young men having their bar mitzvahs right there. It was so cool. And you notice, okay, there's a wall, but nobody got uptight about the women looking over. Nobody said, you can't do that. This is the men's side. You know, and obviously it's not that hard to look over. It's only like a five-foot wall or something. So it's a modesty barrier, but you don't got to be religious about it, you know? <laughs> and there's that uh, bridge I was telling you about. This was built on some years later. They've actually, they've got ideas of when doorways were made, when arches were made, which person put them up, you know, which decade. They've, they've got it all mapped out. It's pretty impressive. Well, every once in a while, there's a place where there's goosebumps for me. The synagogue in Gamla, where I'm standing, where Jesus himself taught goosebumps. That pavement underneath the wall, standing where Jesus stood, goosebumps for me. I want to show you another goosebump moment. See, Steve, those are a bunch of rocks. Yes, they are. But let me read to you a passage of Scripture. Luke 21, 5 through 6, Jesus is on the Mount of Olives with his disciples, so you know he's got a perfect view of the temple. This is what he says. Then as some of 
Then, as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, he said, These things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Back to that picture, if you don't mind. These are some of those stones Jesus prophesied about. These were up on the Temple Mount that were actually thrown off where that big parapet area was, where the um, pinnacle of the temple was, where the western wailing wall was. That whole area was just strewn with rubble that was pushed off the top of the Temple Mount. When Jesus said the stones were going to be thrown down and not one was left, he was speaking literally. It was a prophecy. It was fulfilled. And I got to touch the stones that fulfilled Jesus' prophecy. Goosebump moment. Now, next slide. That's that pile of stones I just showed you, original. Here's the pavement they landed on to give you an idea of the force of the impact. I mean, that's some solid ground right there, but it crushed it down into the dirt. Just amazing. This is part of the Western Wall. There's that bridge that leads up to the Temple Mount. So we're on the other side of the Bar Mitzvah by several yards, just to give you an idea of where we're standing. All right, I only have one more picture for you. Nope, two more. Let me show you this one. And Nick, whatever you do, don't show him the next picture till I tell you. Because it's the goosiest, bumpiest moment of my entire trip. And I gotta save it till the end. This is us. So if you figure we're about six feet tall right here, I'll give you an idea how big this monument is. This is called Absalom's tomb. It is neither Absalom's nor a tomb, but it is known as Absalom's tomb. This is a nephesh or a monument that was built adjacent to tombs. So the tombs are back here and around here and such. Maybe some up there. This itself was not a tomb. I have no idea how tall it is, but it's really honking big. And for many years, it was called Absalom's tomb. And Orthodox Jewish people would, would chuck rocks at it, cursing the name of Absalom because of his wickedness and spitting at it. But then they decided this doesn't go back to the days of Absalom. It's not Absalom's. This decoration, see this cone on top? This was very popular architecture and the way this is done in the first century. Not in the days of Absalom, but in the days of Jesus. And then one day, some archaeologists were there right around sundown. And I don't know exactly where the light was hitting, but I'm going to, you know, somewhere up out here on the cone. And they saw what looked like really faint engravings. Nobody had ever seen them before. So they got a pad and scratched it, you know, with the pencil to make the impression. And they interpreted it. And let me read to you what it said. This is the tomb of Zechariah the martyr, the holy priest, the father of John. Well, they dated that to the 4th century, so that might not be true. But it might. <laughs> We're standing at a monument that might have belonged to John the Baptist's dad, who was a priest in Israel in the 1st century. And a lot of people say this is a 1st century tomb, probably belonged to a priest in a wealthy family. I'm like, I'm touching it. <laughs> but as my good friend Juan would say, there's more. There is more. You smell the incense yet? It's a type of frankincense. I wanted you to smell it. Because John's dad was a priest. And when you were a priest, 
your name was entered into a lottery. And if you were really lucky, once in your life, you might get chosen to do something extremely special. Walk into the holy place and burn incense right in front of the Holy of Holies. And John's dad, Zachariah, won the lottery. Now, you've seen the Temple Mount. Let me tell you how it was laid out. There were some entrances all around, like the east, the north, and the south of the temple, mostly speaking, um, was a huge courtyard that anybody could go to, Jew or Gentile. My house is called the House of Prayer for All Nations. Anybody could go there. But then there was this little wall, just a little wall, with entrances. And at each entrance, there was a stone. And encarved in the stone, it said, engraved in the stone, it said something like this. If you're not Jewish and you pass this stone, your life is in your own hands. You will be executed. Something like that. So, only Jewish people were allowed to the inner courtyard. There was a section for women and a section for men. Got closer. And then there was a section just the priests could go to. But inside, only the guy who won the lottery. And that was Zachariah. He got to go in there and offer incense. That smelled something like what you're smelling. Incense would have clouded up, just like you saw me doing before, and made the glory of God more palpable. Incense represented the sweet-smelling prayers of the saints going up to God. So you know it. This man is standing as close to God as any human being can get on earth with a curtain between him and the Holy of Holies, lighting incense. You know he was praying to God. Let me read to you from the New Testament, which, by the way, is a great segue because next week, this is the story we're going to look at more in depth. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well along in years. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, he was chosen by lot to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. And then they had a conversation, which you'll hear about next week. So Steve... Where's the big aha moment? Where's the goosey bumpies? Let me show you the goosey bumpies. Go ahead and bring it up, Nick. Thanks. Saying, Steve, I'm not feeling it, dude. Here's how it went down. Okay? I'm in an antiquity shop, one of the best, if not the best, in Jerusalem. It's got some of the neatest stuff. It's like a museum, but everything's for sale. So I go in there. And Boaz, our guide and my friend, calls me aside and says, Steve, come here, I want to show you something. And I said, can I touch it? Yeah. So that's me holding it with my picture, taking a picture. What is it, Steve? This is an ash shovel from the temple of Jesus' day. But see, the altar was huge. They sacrificed cows on it. Why is it so small? Because there was one other altar. It was a small altar. And it was an incense altar. Now, I can't say categorically that that's the incense 
uh, shovel that John's dad used. But I'm fairly confident it was an incense shovel. What else could it have been? Nobody knows, so I'm going with incense shovel. And it's from the first century. It's from Jesus' temple. And I'm sitting there holding it in my hands. I can buy that. Anybody got 15 grand? I could probably get it for 10 through Boaz. Yeah, because there's only like five of those in existence. And three of them, I think, are in museums. Wow. I told you, incest represented, among other things, our sweet-smelling prayers going up to God. Let me tell you something. Things have changed. We don't need an incense altar anymore. We don't need a priest. We don't need a temple. We got Jesus. He is our mediator. Amen. You don't need to be put in the lottery to get that close to God. Here's what you got to do. God, that's it. The temple curtain has been torn. We have full access to the Father. You can pray to the God of the universe anytime you feel like it. And he listens immediately to your prayers. If. Let me read to you a passage of scripture again. Both of them were upright in the sight of God. You got to be walking with God, though. You got to love the Lord. And if you've not made a commitment to being God's, the first significant prayer of your life, prayer that will go up like incense, smelling sweet to God that he will hear, we call it the sinner's prayer. That's when you admit to God that you haven't been obeying him, you haven't been walking him, you haven't been believing in him, and you haven't cared about him. And you say you're sorry, you repent, you apologize, you ask him to forgive you, and you tell him you believe, like that song you sang for us. We believe, we believe, and you dedicate yourself to following Jesus. And in a sense, you become a priest with full access to God, as close to God as a human can get on this planet, knowing that you're even going to get closer when Jesus comes back, because there's more. Please join me in prayer. Oh, Lord, thank you so much for letting us see, touch, smell, and experience the Holy Land. And thank you for the promise that you made that you'll be back. Just like you said, not one stone would be left standing, and it wasn't. You said you'll be back, and you will. We trust you. We believe in you. But Lord, please, hurry. We're ready. We want you to come. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. But if we must wait, give us our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, our sins, our debts, even as we forgive those who offend us. Lead us not into temptation, God, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom. Yours is the glory and the power. And all of God's children say, Amen. Lord, bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you his peace. God bless you. Dismissed.